The Ratio of Rehearsal Time to Performance Time, an interview with Christopher Gabitas, former member of the King Singers and conductor of the Phoenix Chorale, and our composer profile on Thomas Tompkins. This is Early Music Monday. Something that you're going to hear in the interview with Christopher Gabitas that's mentioned just briefly is the ratio of rehearsal time to performance time. And as he said that, so many things clicked in my mind. So I I remember, well, you think about these British choir cathedral schools and I spent six weeks in London with, in a study abroad with BYU's choral department, and we went to a performance, a rehearsal, or a service every day, well, on average every day for six weeks. It was amazing. And you watch these choir boys who are, you know, eight years old, nine years old, sight-reading, Durifle and Foray and these Renaissance masters. I'm just like, man, how the heck do they do that? And it's like, okay, I understand that they're in boarding school for music, but what could they be learning that we aren't teaching? Like, why is it so different? And when... Christopher said the ratio of rehearsal time to performance time is so much smaller than it is in America. Everything kind of made sense. It's because they're forced to read really fast. So the ratio is, you know, a couple hours or like one day to one performance, one day of rehearsal to one day of performance on the same day. And think about, I think about my program. I don't, I have one concert per term. There's four terms per school year. Or, you know, if you think of a community choir or professional choir, it's like, you know, you have one concert, you on average have 10 or so rehearsals. Depending, If you rehearse once a week and you have one concert a term, so to speak, your ratio is like eight, between eight and 12 days of rehearsal to one day of performance. If you're in a school setting and you meet almost every day, the ratio is like 60 days or 30 days, depending on how often you meet, if you have a block schedule or a meeting every day to one day of rehearsal, or sorry, one day of performance. And in these boarding schools, it's one day of rehearsal to one day of performance. So they're performing all the time. I also think of, I think of my choir program as Well, and also then in the professional choral world, sometimes it's three or four days 
of rehearsal or five or six days to one day of performance or two days of performance. So either way, I mean, and that's probably in an ideal world, that's probably close to the smallest ratio in the American system that isn't connected with a church choir school that's performing church services on a regular basis. So in an educational setting, a community setting, or in a professional performing setting, performing, performing setting, that's, that might be the smallest we can get. But I also think of it in terms of a sport. How often do sports teams practice? I mean, you're talking about your school football team or basketball team. You know, football team, they practice three times a week, four times a week, and then they have a game once a week. So it's three or four to one. Much closer to a professional choir setting or ratio. If you think about basketball, sometimes they have games twice a week. So it's two practices a week or one sometimes between games. So it's like, let's say two to one, which is much closer to the choir school. Now they practice a ton before the season starts. So it's a little bit different and I'm aware of that, but it's just interesting to kind of compare the two worlds and why it necessarily has to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. I think that there's ways to kind of shorten that. So to illustrate, um, when I was in BYU Singers, Tenebrae Choir came from England and performed Handel's Messiah with BYU Singers and Concert Choir. It was amazing. We got to rehearse with them, and Nigel Short conducted us, and... Oh man, it was it was a once in a lifetime experience and I am so grateful to have been a part of it. As part of that visit that they were here for a couple of days, uh Nigel Short did a few sit-down Q&A sessions with some of the choral students. And he talked through the boy chorister experience. And he he he's talking about his son who was going to be starting at boarding school the following year. But it's really indicative of kind of the average boy choristers experience at any of the cathedral schools throughout England. So he talked about, here's their schedule. 6.45, they wake up, 20 minutes, and they have instrumental practice. They're all required to play two instruments besides singing. Then they have, after that 20 minutes, they have 40 minutes of boys rehearsal where they'll just learn the music for the service to be done later that evening. Then they have breakfast, 20 minutes, 20 more minutes of instrumental practice. And then they have their school day, all their academic courses. Then after school, they have homework time. And I can't remember how long he said that's for. I don't think he actually specified, but they have homework time designated to them. Then they have another 45-minute boys' rehearsal, just with the boys, and then a 30-minute rehearsal with the rest of the choir. So if if they're – he was talking about his son is going to St. John's College, Cambridge, so it's all undergraduates. But in in like Westminster or uh, a cathedral that's not connected to university, 
it would be, you know, the adult men that are in the choir. And 30 minutes is all they rehearse with those, with the rest of the choir. And then they have the service. Then after the service, they have 45 minutes of playtime, just free time, and then they have supper, and then it's time for bed. And they do that every day. Saturdays are a little bit different, but they learn the music that day for the music that they're going to be performing that day. So they have to get really quick. So he told the story of how he went and observed with his son. Their family went on Saturday because the family, the parents can come on Saturdays and take them out for a day, but they have to be back for boys' rehearsals. So it was really funny to hear him talk about all the sporting equipment that's all around. People are like all the boys playing cricket or rugby. And so it looked more like a gymnasium. And I thought that was really, really cool because it shows that they all do sports too. They do sports and they sing. They're really kind of well-rounded kids. Um, but Nigel said that they're all incredibly focused and they loved being there. And the conductor would ask, okay, who could sing an A-flat? The boys just raised their hand, sing an A-flat. <laughs> and he said that in passing. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like little kids have perfect pitch? Are you kidding me? And then the conductor would just kind of cue them and they just start singing with no piano. And Nigel said that he didn't hear like a single wrong note and he didn't hear a single word spoken the boys were all completely focused. And he said it was very impressive. I'm just like, holy, what world? In what world? I pictured my, I was teaching junior high at the time, so I pictured that, and I pictured my seventh graders who are literally throwing pencils in the ceiling, and <laughs> I was like, there's no way that's real. There's no way. But it is, and it, and they've kind of created this culture of how cool it is to do. And that might not sound super fun for a lot of the kids in our classes today, like to have that level of focus and like no talking, but they loved it. And I think seeing other singers, like those young boys, seeing male singers sing like so amazingly to serve kind of as role models is a really amazing part of it. That's kind of for another time, I, I guess a discussion for another time. Um, but that, that level of rehearsal, you know, again, we don't have an hour and a half to teach just one part most of the time. Right, most or or maybe two parts if the if the soprano split into two or three. Uh, in terms of the boys' rehearsal that they're a part of, but they learn the notes all together. Like just them, and then when they come together with the rest of the choir in the afternoon, they already know their part. So it's only thirty minutes of rehearsal. So it's not even. I wouldn't even say it's one day to one performance. One day of rehearsal to one day of performance. It's like half day of rehearsal to one day of performance if you kind of do the averages between the boys and the rest of the choir. But that got me thinking too of maybe we rehearse too much. That's going to be 
that might sound really radical because I know I'm prepping for my high school concert right now. And I'm just like, oh, I need more time. <laughs> I can't do it. We're not going to make it. But maybe because we have so much rehearsal time, we're not as effective as we could be. And we're not giving the responsibility for excellence to the singers themselves. And so I've, ha- I've been thinking a lot about this. In a public school setting, how can you decrease the ratio of rehearsals to performances? Something that I think is really crucial to them learning quickly is the sense of urgency. My students learn more. Well, and, and in the pro choir world, Sound of Ages is a little bit the same way. The closer you get to the performance, the more quickly they learn and put stuff together because they feel the urgency of, okay, we got to get this done. Concerts tomorrow or, okay, concerts in a week. We got we to gotta really work hard. And I don't, I'm not good at portraying that sense of urgency from rehearsal number one. Maybe that's a completely other podcast that would be a great discussion is how do you kind of imbibe that sense of urgency into the group without making it a kind of a boot camp type environment. But regardless of that separate conversation, I think that that sense of urgency, one way to do it is by increasing the number of performances. So here's just like a couple of ideas literally just off the top of my head on things you can do, things that I'm going to try and to bring the ratio down. Maybe you have bi-monthly performances on your, like if you, if your school does video announcements, it's like every other week you're one of the choirs is going to do a, a short two-minute piece, super short, if your administration would go for that. Or maybe if they're not going to go for that, maybe you do a weekly performance in the cafeteria or the commons area. Even if it's during class and no one's out there, you film it and put it on a, on a school choir Facebook page or something. Pick something that's older and more historic that's in the public domain so you don't have to worry about copyright. Or if you do want to get like license and clearance to do that, then go for it. But maybe, maybe you do something like that. Maybe you do a monthly mini concert with your advanced group. Um, I treat my advanced choir like a varsity sport in terms of they have higher commitment level. So, and they, they are all in for that. They know that that's what they expect going into the year. So we're going to do a mini concert of two or three pieces once a month. And the rest of the choirs do their one concert per term. And the advanced choirs mini concert lines up during that time at the same time. So they perform it at the same concert. But then they have concerts every month or every three weeks or something. I don't know. Again, those are just off the top of my head, but I'm sure there's other ways you can, uh, like we've, we've mentioned before, of splitting your choirs into like quartets or octets and having a performance day 
where they perform just for the rest of the class. And these pieces don't have to be big or complex. They can be simple hymn tunes, all homophonic or something. But the point is, is that they're prepping for a performance, so they're forced to learn quickly. And that's that may seem to many of you as like, well, I do that already, and that's great. I would love to hear how it's going. For others of you, you might think that's really radical and kind of dumb. And maybe it is. I have no idea. But I, I want to try some of it and see if if lowering that ratio of rehearsal to performance improves the students' abilities to be independent musicians. Because I think that's what makes all those British singers such good sight readers and great vocalists because they're forced, because the nature of performing often, they're forced to read fast and they're forced to have good technique because they have to have the stamina to do it. That might... You, you, you might have to sacrifice some other things in your program, sure, because there, there's pros and cons to everything, but something to think about. Alrighty, we'll go to our interview with Christopher Gabitas. Christopher began singing when he was eight years old as a boy chorister, as we just talked about, um, in a cathedral in Rochester, UK. He grew up and, and kind of has been singing ever since. When he got a vocal scholarship to St. John's College, Cambridge, where he studied, and he also combined his choral studies with a degree in law. He continued his professional singing career um, as, as after he graduated. And between 2004 and 2019, Christopher was the second baritone in the King Singers. 15 years in the King Singers. He's sung on pretty much every continent in every country. They go on tour all the time, like nine months out of the year they're on tour. So um, he's most well-known probably for that. Um, in 2019, he began his position as the artistic, the artist professor at the University of Redlands, California. He's kind of teaching a unique master's degree course that focuses on like the highest level of choral performance coupled with music business education. And their goal is to produce professional musicians who understand the commercial reality of the industry. And he's really passionate about musicians' un need for understanding the importance of sustainability for arts organizations. And the COVID time has really taught us how important it really is. Um, in May of 2019, Christopher was appointed the artistic director for the Phoenix Chorale, su succeeding Charles Bruffy, who's a very, very well-known and accomplished conductor who uh, began the Phoenix Chorale. So he continues to work uh, in law and in singing and conducting. So we now turn to our interview with Christopher Gavitas. Thank you, Christopher Gabitas, for joining us today on Early Music Monday. Um, to start, I would love to hear like a, a bullet point, you know, really quick story into how you got to where you are now. 
from when you first decided, yes, I want to sing for a living? Sure. Uh, I started singing properly when I was eight years old uh, here in England in the cathedral in Rochester, which is a very old cathedral in the southeast of England. And my parents were keen amateur musicians and had always sung in choirs and played the piano. And they noticed from quite an early age that, that my brother and I were both interested in singing and spent time just picking up tunes and melodies and singing them back um, pretty easily. So they decided to see if we could, if we could get chorus to positions, uh, which we did. And so we sang for five years from the age of about eight to 13. And it's an extraordinary and unique education because it's focused really on sight singing. Right. If you think about it, there's the seven, seven services a week and you have only an hour or two to practice beforehand. So the ratio of rehearsal to performing is, is very, very low. Right. So from that, I gained a good sight reading ability and a huge enjoyment from choral music. It was really where I felt most, most at home and most comfortable in terms of um, extracurricular pursuits, I suppose. And I always loved it. And I took a few years break when my voice changed. But then um, it was kind of calling me to come back. So by the time I was 15, 16, I was singing as a bass. Uh, and I had a, a music scholarship at school, a school, good school to do that. And then moved from there to St. John's College, Cambridge, which is a wonderful choir. Yeah. And... Um, sang there for three years as an undergraduate whilst pursuing a law degree. And I did that because I wanted to have um, options. Yeah. So we were very lucky because we were singing daily services in chapel to, to a very high standard and broadcasting and recording, but also I was able to do the law degree. So it, it kind of it fulfilled the artistic and the process-driven side of my brain. And that's a balance I've always wanted. Sure. Um, I, I saw lots of friends leaving university and... Um, wanting to be professional musicians uh, and they were all talented enough to do it but it doesn't work for everybody and I saw some of them become quite disappointed and resentful of the of the music industry yeah. and so I, I thought to myself that I'd like the opportunity to to have something else to do as well so after Cambridge I went across to Oxford and did law school and sang at Christchurch and kept the two careers going in tandem really even even after I'd qualified as a as an attorney in London, yeah, wow. Uh, I was still singing regularly for for church choirs and doing recording session work, and through that, I got asked to audition for the King Singers. And and my singing teacher at the time said, "If you're meant to be a musician, it will find you," and she was right. And and there were doors that opened, and I, I walked through them, and and so I ended up ended up in the King Singers for fifteen years. Um, singing, doing some conducting, some choir training, and I left in 2018. And since then, I've been partly a lawyer, partly a professor, and partly a conductor. That's amazing. What a fascinating! There are not very many in the arts worlds who do pursue kind of both sides of the brain type careers. So I, I think that that's really. I have one friend who sings professionally in Chicago and is pursuing law school right now at Midwestern. So, so um, that's really fascinating. When you were in the King Singers, I would love to hear your experience of, or, or maybe even in cathedral choirs, there's this kind of, in my mind, there's a difference between the role of the conductor 
that I've noticed when I was in London for like six weeks with BYU's choral department and we went to performances every day almost. There's like a perceived difference to me in the role of the conductor versus the role of the ensemble. Do you perceive similar differences between England and the United States or not? Like, what do you feel like the role of the conductor is, I guess I should say? That's a good question. I think certainly in church music in England, the role of the conductor is to facilitate the worship, if you like, from the ensemble. Mm -hmm. So the conductors don't really get in the way. And many church and cathedral conductors are not necessarily technically trained to a very high level, but they are musically trained to a very high level. And right. so their gesture and their interpretation of the music is really designed not to get in the way, not mm. to get in the way of the worship and the service and not to get in the way of the music and how it's formulated. And going back to what I said earlier about, about sight singing and sight reading, um, the idea was that the singers were very much able to sing with their heads out of the copies from a very early degree. Yeah. So the level of training for that was very high, but the level of... Um, interpretive training was was not particularly high because you would watch your director get to know what their gesture was and the music would come from there and i suppose the main difference in america is that by and large the conductors are incredibly well trained and the technical mastery is um is at a very very high level um but in some ways you could argue that that can get in the way of the music because the the conducting technique is an end in of itself yeah. um, and that's not really my philosophy I th I'm not accusing everybody of that by any means but I think I think sometimes conductors can can get in the way and become become the focal point themselves and with 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 my philosophy that they're, they're not really at all we're, we're there to facilitate whether if you think about a um, a satellite dish beaming information with a tiny pinpoint of energy which yeah. goes to the choir, and then the choir is the one that creates the sound, um, yeah. and we have to we, we have to be the catalyst. But they're they're the ones who who collaboratively construct the the sound. Now we have to have the interpretive ideas. Sure. But beyond that, beyond that, the last thing you want in the performance is to see a conductor jumping around. <laughs> right. Exactly. So how do you? What do you do in a rehearsal setting from a practical standpoint to kind of communicate that to your singers? Quite a lot of talking, to be honest. And that was true in the King Singers as well. We were unconducted, of course. And often people would want to attend our rehearsals. And sometimes they'd be quite disappointed by the fact that in a 90-minute in a rehearsal or a two-hour rehearsal, we'd spend half our time talking. Yeah. Talking wow. about how to approach the music and how to approach voicing and interpretation and chords and dynamics and diction and pacing and poise. Poise is possibly the most important thing really within music. Um, and we wouldn't spend much time singing. And so with, with the Phoenix Chorale in particular, uh, which I've been directing for a year now, we do spend time talking because I want all of the musicians to feel invested in the performance. And I think if, if, you, if you dictate too much, and, and tell them what you would what you would like in, in an overbearing way, yeah. then they might not feel as involved in the process and as invested. And I want them to want to do what, what I would like. 
yeah. because they understand the rationale. So we do talk. We talk about the text. We talk about the the history of the uh, of the piece. We talk about the conduct, the composer, and their mindset and their preferences. Talk about the, the yeah, the poet, or the lyricist, and yeah. try to get under the skin of what what the piece is about, really, and therefore how we will choose to deliver it. Yeah, and I, the recordings that I've seen of Phoenix Chorale of you conducting that really comes across. Of it's it's a fully invested emotional experience from everyone. I don't see anyone who's just like, you know, tuned out emotionally just singing. And that's really fantastic. So in the King Singers, when you talk about singing conductorless and and you spent time talking in rehearsal, what are some practical things that get you from those talking points in rehearsal to actually like performing it on stage? I think the key concepts are always going to be listening and breathing. And whether you're listening for balance or listening for tuning or listening for vowel matching or blending or um, any number of other bricks that make up, make up the structure of the sound, um, it's just fundamentally important to think vertically. Yeah. So with the six, we never horizontally about our own musical line. We were always thinking about our lines in the context of the whole. Mm. And if it was polyphony, we would pass uh, an invisible baton around, if you like. We'd, we'd learn when it was important to take that baton and to be at the forefront of the sound and then pass it on to somebody else, and they would then be at the forefront of the sound. You'd work out who was the important voice at any one period of time. In homophonic writing, it would be about balance and tuning and blend and making sure that we were, our vowel sounds were unified. And that we, we always sang with a very, a very forward, bright, Italian sound. Even when singing traditionally darker Northern European languages, such as German or English, sure. or, or, or um, Western Scandinavian languages, Norwegian or Danish, traditionally quite dark, but actually they're all Russian even, but they're not that dark, really. And I think if you project, if you project your sound in a very, very bright and forward-thinking manner, always imagining that the text is formulated at the last minute, right around where the teeth are, mm then you stand a much better chance of producing an extrovert sound. And it's that extrovert sound, especially when it's quiet. The quieter you are, the more extrovert you need to be with your intention. And that's what fills the building. And that's what helps with the emotional investment, both, both for the King Singers and for the Phoenix Chorale. And the, the, the breathing, so that's listening. The breathing is imperative because when you're conductorless, the breath gives you two or three things. It gives you the, the character of the piece, yeah. Uh, it, it could be an excited breath, or it could be a more languid or sorrowful breath. It gives you the dynamic, that will affect how you breathe, and it gives you the tempo, that affects the length of the breath. And it's very commonly taught, particularly in America, that breathing should be unheard and it should be silent. And again, that's something where I'm, I'm bucking the trend a bit because I like, I like to hear the aspirative nature of a breath healthily, I don't, right. I don't like it to be created with tension, right. but I think it's perfectly possible to breathe healthily and audibly. And it's that breath that creates the bridge between silence and sound. Yeah. And because the sound that we create is organic as singers, we don't, we don't use a machine. We're right. not using an oboe or a clarinet. We're not using a, a violin or a, or a percussive instrument. Our sound is part of our soul and part of who we are. We cannot produce it without breath. And so for me, the breath is part of the performance. And it's imperative that we, 
we speak about it and we, we make it work for us. I tend to agree wholeheartedly with that. I did another interview with a really phenomenal voice uh, pedagogue from East Carolina University, and she said the same thing, that if I can't hear your car start, then I'm not ready for you to drive. And so, you know, so it was, it, I think that I'm hoping that that trend of inaudible breath is kind of fading away because I, I, I think that that, just like when 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 the King Singers came to BYU and and you said that very thing or or I can't remember who it was that said it, we were all like looking at our director. Is that okay? <laughs> you know, of like okay, you know, and uh, but it does it is. I'm sorry, it did help us sing more as an ensemble, putting the responsibility on the singers as opposed to just the conductor telling us exactly what to do when to do it. So what are some what are some things then, those practical things, how do you translate that, some specific things, to a larger ensemble, whether it's conductorless or with a conductor? I think the principle is the same. The message remains constant, and it's almost a battle for hearts and minds. If you're a new conductor, um, whenever I have joined a new institution of whatever nature, it's nice to sit back for six to 12 months and not change anything because you have to, as a newcomer, you have to respect the fact that people are already there and you have to learn the ensemble and learn their ways and learn their collective mentality. And then gradually you can, you can start to introduce things and change things. And as the performances have gone on, desperately sadly, of course, we haven't been able to meet in person for many months now. Right. And so I, I've conducted only three full series with the Chorale, and one of those was my candidacy project in February 2019. Mm. So I haven't had the opportunity to, to, to start to move things in the direction I'd like to go properly yet. But we've spoken a lot already about breathing and about the bright forward nature of the sound. Yeah. And it's repetition. As with anything in life, it's just, it's just constant, gentle reminders that you like things done in a certain way and demonstrating how in your mind it's better to do them that way. So demonstrating how things have been done and can be done in different ways. And hopefully you can prove to them that, that, that your, your idea about, say, breathing or using Italian at vowels most of the time, singing in a very forward, bright way, how that benefits their hearing and their perception and their enjoyment within the performance. Um, so whether it's a small ensemble or a large ensemble, the principles are the same. Yeah. It just might take longer to get the message across, but you must do it. You must do it in a very, very positive way. I've been um, teaching some of my students in Redlands, California, using um, wonderful texts by James Jordan. And he speaks very, very passionately about, about the fact that you, you have to direct with love and you have to direct with care and yeah. you have to think about how each of your singers is, is feeling. And yeah. if you don't build that relationship up in a very, very positive way, then people start to feel blamed and victimized. Yeah. And within music, that, that should never come into it. Um, we have frustrations, but nine times out of 10, the frustrations are due to our own conducting style or teaching style and not to do with the singers themselves. Right. So, um, and I, I struggle with that, you know, I struggle with maintaining that complete poise and gentleness, but it's a battle which we, as, as directors, we must win it because we have to make our singers feel yeah. valued at all times. 
Yeah, especially when they're even if even if it's in a professional setting and we're paying them, they're still choosing to be there. They don't have to. So I I think that that's a good reminder for all of us. So to shift gears a little bit, um, when interpreting different time like eras of music, especially with just to preface for the audience listening's sake, when you when the King Singers came to BYU and you were talking about interpretation, and I remember a really great discussion that happened about speaking of dynamics as colors, textural colors instead of, or textual colors instead of um, decibel levels, I guess. Yeah. Um, if when you're singing pieces from different time periods, what are some specific thing, or I guess it, just will you speak on that about like how, how do you, how you navigate those kinds of waters when you're talking about a piece like William Byrd or a piece by Eric's Eschenbalds? I think you can use the same techniques for, for any piece of music um, to, to an extent um, music is music is music. And yeah. you must, you must use whatever techniques and ideologies and um, metaphors that you need to get the sound that you require. And in the Kingsingers, we did talk about, in fact, when I joined the Kingsingers, our, our logo, if you like, or our tagline was the color of song. Mm. And that was dropped after a few years, but I've always thought that it neatly represented what we were trying to do because, because the, the, many, many choirs sing in quite a monochrome way. Mm. And I think almost the, almost the worst thing you can say about performance is that it was correct. It was very correct. All the notes were in the right place, in the right order, and the tuning was fine, and the words were right. But that's, that's not really making music. That's, right. that's very formulaic. It's very technical. And what we tried to do was to bring as wide a spectrum of different colors to the music as we could. And color could mean dynamic. It could mean tone. It could mean um, blend, balance. It, it could mean emotion. And again, breath comes into this again, because if you don't breathe properly, you, you cannot display the depth of emotion that music requires. If, if, uh, in our ordinary life, whenever a life event happens, um, it affects our breathing and it affects the way that we aspirate and it affects the way that we communicate to, 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 to the people with whom we're sharing that life experience. And singing should be, if anything, a greater um, example of that than a lesser one. And so the colours that we can get into our voice are affected by the breath and the tone and affected by, um, by, by our facial expressions and by, by everything about us really. Yeah. And whether we were approaching a piece of bird or uh, an arrangement of music by the Beatles, we might use the same techniques. Yeah. Um, I remember working on the Jeswaldo Tenor Bay response reads for Maundy Thursday. <laughs> for the quieter, more reflective sections of the Jesualdo would be exactly the same sort of thing as we'd use for uh, a piece of pop music from the 21st century. And particularly the use of the breath in the sound itself, not just before the sound, but almost putting a corona of breath around the core mm. sound. Yeah. It was a very effective technique for blending the voices together and for creating a sort of a shimmery effect that would excite the air and 
start overtones to sound. Mm. Um, so we didn't we didn't sort of limit ourselves and say, well, Renaissance music is is orange, red, and blue, and uh, contemporary music is yellow, green, and brown. It, it wasn't it wasn't like that. Although with some people, literally talking about colour would help them. Yeah, you know, I, I want this sound to be red. Would would help them to sing in a way which which worked. Yeah. Other people needed needed to talk about life experiences or emotions to to get into the the real feel. Um, yeah. Connecting your soul with your voice is a hard thing to do for most people, but if you can do that, it widens the spectrum of the colours that you can you can produce. Yeah, and I also tend to agree with you that there are a lot more similarities in those types of interpretive and stylistic interpretations that between all the musical time periods because they were human beings too so they had they had very similar experiences just in a different context than but we have sorrow and joy and and life as well so so we have about just a couple minutes left i want to ask one last question um let's see if i can find it here it's on my list while you're oh it was actually not on my list. <laughs> it was something that you had said earlier about poise. Um, I am not sure if I understand exactly what you mean by poise. Um, would you speak on poise and how that can apply to an ensemble of any size, I guess? Of course. Really, it's the time and the space around the music. Mm. And I think what musicians can often fail to remember is that the, the performance is multidimensional and it begins several seconds before the first note sounds and it continues long after the final note has finished. Mm. And as, as a listener, I need to feel safe and feel comfortable at all times during the performance. And for me, what that means is the ensemble needs to be very grounded and content and calm on the stage. I need to be aware of what I'm, what I'm about to be hearing, perhaps through an introduction or through looking at my program. There needs to be some silence. There needs to be a pitch blown possibly. And then finding that golden moment, which is the moment when we all, we all recognize it when we hear it, when, when the, the space hushes and the silence becomes almost unbearable and uncomfortable. And then out of that moment of silence comes the first sound, whatever it might be, whether it's a loud chord or whether it's a very, very quiet solo entry. Mm-hmm. But we feel fully prepared for it by that point in time because the prep work has been done. And, it's, and, and that level of poise should continue through the performance. Don't be afraid of, of rests. Don't be afraid of the silence within the music. Um, silence doesn't mean that the, the music stops. The, 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 the tactus and the beat continues through rests and continues through breaks between movements or breaks between phrases or sections. But these must never be hurried, never be rushed. Consonants shouldn't be um, snapped or snipped, um, shouldn't be sort of bitten off too quickly. That, that we, we must use rubato as musicians to fit in with the natural rhythm of of our breathing and of, of our, our hearts beating and of the way that the listeners can, um, can absorb the music that we're creating. It's not to say that some music isn't fast, but fast music shouldn't feel fast. Fast music should feel controlled. 
And slow music shouldn't feel turgid. Slow music should feel as though it's, it's got continuous motion. So motion and time and silence and space all combine to create poise. And essentially the poise is the complete mastery of the piece of music mm. so that we feel comfortable that what the performers are doing is within their capabilities and that they are engaged fully in what they're presenting to us and that we feel as though consequently we're experiencing something which is transcendent of ordinary life. And I think what we're trying to do as musicians is not just reproduce notes on a page through sounds, but to create a unique and beautiful experience which adds a value to life, which it's impossible to find anywhere else. Wow, yeah, that is profound. And I'm gonna have to go and think about that because that is all just new information coming at me or a new perspective, I should say, and sums up, I think, what we do as choral musicians beautifully, that it is transcendent above, especially in times like this, right, where it's like there's so much uncertainty. We perhaps have a uniquely a unique opportunity and a unique field to offer some of that safety and poise and beauty to people around us who may not get that experience anywhere else other than a concert or a recording. So it's not to say we always get there. In fact, we, we rarely do. We seldom do, but we live for the moments when we can create those experiences and we strive for them always. And we hope that as time goes on with any ensemble, um, that, that we reach them more and more often. And you can, you know, they can be reached with, with children's ensembles and with school ensembles and university ensembles. You don't have to be a, right. a, a top-level professional ensemble to reach that. It's, a, it's about the, the connection between the people that are making the music at their level and at that point in time. And beauty, beauty is so subjective and it can be created wow. in, at, at any level of music. And the important thing is, is doing it. And at the moment, many people, myself included, feel as though we've been robbed of the chance to do that by this, this right. terrible virus. And it is right that we socially distance and it is right that we are not foolhardy and reckless right. with our desire to meet as musicians. Um, but virtual choirs just don't cut it for me. They're not, that's not what we do. Um, we will do them because we want to do something and we want to inspire hope. And within, within any, any given situation, you do what you can. But yeah. I've seen some disturbing articles, disturbing to me, that suggest that because we've proved that we can do virtual choirs, there may be less need for meeting in person <laughs> to make music in future. And that terrifies me. Yeah, That's me not what music's about. It's about the connection between the human soul and our need for community. And that, that simply cannot be created artificially or synthesized. It has to be done in person. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'll, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for being on the, to interview. I really appreciate you coming on and, and No, I've, I've, I've loved it. I've loved it. And I know that your listeners are particularly in early music, which is a great love of mine as well. And I think um, almost the most important thing we can do as early music lovers is to try to present it in a relevant way for the modern listener.
Yeah. And um, that's not always easy. We, we may see and understand and fall in love with the beauty of it on hearing the first few notes, but to many people, it's, it's an unusual and uh, not very accessible or user-friendly genre. And so I'd encourage anybody out there who, who loves it as much as, as I do to try to make it as relevant as possible within the thread of programming, within mixed media performances, within dramatic works. Um, it can set a scene unlike any other type of music in my, in my opinion. It's so evocative of a particular time period and um, you know, the, the, the warfare and the religious turmoil and the, yeah. the, the, the punishment and the crime and the, the difficulties of life that went on in, in the Renaissance and, right. and also the mischievousness and the, you know, the, the suggestive nature of, of, of those times as well. And you know, everything about life and soul, it's, it's the pop music of its day as yeah. well as being the religious soundtrack of its day. And so I, I very, I'm very fiercely proud of my, of my love of the genre, but I think, we, I think we have to work harder at making it relevant for our audiences so that they can fall in love with it too. Absolutely. And that's the main goal of this podcast is to give conductors, listeners, amateur musicians, hobbyists, doesn't matter, anybody listening, just a few more tools to be able to go to a performance or perform a performance to say, look, this is how this is all relevant still. It's mm. just as relevant as it was then. Just like in our conversation earlier about they were humans too, and we can sing with some of those same emotions now, and it just may, we just may need to yeah. educate our audience a little bit more. And, and don't take it too seriously. You know, if you're singing right. a Renaissance magical, which is about uh, drinking or love or sex or war or gossip or all of the things that, that are still relevant to life today, right. then don't, don't treat it as though it's a historical artifact that, that you need to be hugely respectful of. Treat it as a, if it's a bawdy subject matter, sing it in a bawdy way. If it's, if it's lusty, sing it lustily. If it's, you know, whatever it's about, get, get under the skin of it and present it as, you know, present it with irreverence if, if that's what's required. Yeah, uh, I think I think part of the concern about early music is that we, we put it on a pedestal and it comes across as being very dry and very dull when in many instances it's anything but it's anything but that. So yeah. we we must let it live in a way that its authors intended 500 years ago. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Great. Well, I, and who knows, maybe I'll, I'll ask you to be on again in six months or a year or something, and, and we can talk further about some of these subjects. I, I feel like I, my mind is racing with all kinds of new ideas and perspectives that I'm going to go try literally in one hour with my high school students, or two hours, I guess. So um, I really appreciate it, and I know that the listeners will benefit greatly from the things that we've talked about. So. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's really nice speaking with you. I'd be, I'd be delighted to, to do it again. And, um, you know, to everyone out there, stay safe, stay healthy. Um, keep enjoying music any way you can. And hopefully we'll be back to live performances soon. For our composer profile today, we're going to talk about Thomas Tompkins, British Renaissance composer who studied with William Byrd, for whom he had a great respect um, and reverence.
He was appointed an organist at Worcester Cathedral. For those of you who, like me, when I first saw <clears throat> the name Worcester Cathedral, I said it, Worcester Cathedral. But yes, it's Worcester Cathedral, just like Worcestershire sauce, which is really fun to say. Anyway, and he married a woman who was nine years his senior. So definitely wasn't robbing the cradle. <clears throat> anyway, Tompkins and Gib Orlando Gibbons and other gentlemen of the royal court were in charge of composing the music for both St. James I's funeral and Charles I's coronation, which happening uh, simultaneously. So it was an intense amount of work in a short amount of time. The strain proved a little too much, and Orlando Gibbons actually died of a stroke during that time, leaving Tompkins to basically carry the load himself. Um, and because of, but then because of plague that had kind of swept the area, the ceremonies were postponed. So I thought that little fact was relevant for today. Many of us were stressed in things about uh, performances or commissions or deadlines or any number of things, and then the plague happened and things got postponed. And um, I just thought it was interesting how even then big events were postponed because of things uh, regarding health and pandemics and that musicians in general had to adapt and and kind of change their plan. And then in 1646, Worcester Cathedral was damaged in the English Civil War, and the cathedral was closed and the choir disbanded, which is tragic. So instead of writing music for the church and the choir, he started writing music for smaller, secular kind of chamber groups or consort groups of instrumentalists primarily. So again, there's another thing that caused him to make adjustments. I'm sure it was really hard for him to not compose church music and choral music, but because he was a musician and because he had to adapt to the circumstances, he, he kind of changed his game plan and went forward with that and had great success. So I thought his story was particularly relevant for today, as we're all sort of making similar adjustments in our own careers and life. So for a beginning piece by Thomas Tompkins, there's several. He wrote lots of secular music in addition to his sacred music for the church. And a lot of these British madrigals that... Um, were kind of popular at the time. But one of the sacred pieces that he wrote that would be good for emerging choir is Have Mercy Upon Me, O God. It's for S.A.B. There's really good imitative entrances. And you can kind of teach, you know, the first two measures or something to the whole choir at once and then teach it to them kind of in their imitative entrance points as they learn the rest of their part. 
It's short. It's in English. The ranges are narrow. You could transpose it up a few steps. Some slightly tricky rhythms, but nothing consistently difficult. Another beginning piece, so to speak, would be Fond Men That Do So Highly Prize. It's for S-A-T. The text is hilarious. It's about, you know, how guys will just chase the beautiful girl and who cares if there's any sort of intelligence that she has. <laughs> it's very, I think it's hilarious <laughs> and, and kind of speaks more to how, how, to be frank, dumb guys are. <laughs> and I don't know, I think it's hilarious. And then it's for soprano, alto, and tenor. But again, the tenor could be moved up and could be done by an equal treble voice of some kind. There's really good polyphony. The ranges are a little bit wider because it's a madrigal, so it's a little bit less conservative than the sacred style. But it would be really good for the male cambiata voice, like cambiata one or two, because the tenor part kind of sits, you know, mostly above middle C up to the G above, G4, I believe that is. And and it goes down, but not very often and not super far, I think, to an E, E3, if I'm not mistaken. But it would be really good for those cambiata-changing male voices in the tenor part. Um, an intermediate piece... Moving on would be Weep No More Thou Sorry Boy. The ranges are a bit wide, but could be lowered a whole step or a minor third. And then if you lower it like that, you have the bases not go down to what would then be like an F or an E at the cadence points, but go up. That could be uh, a really good practical approach. There's great text painting. And the the text is so overdramatic and hilarious. I think teenagers would love it. Of just like how sorrowful you are when your love leaves you and just how you might as well die. Like it would be better to die than than have this happen. And it it's just, I think these British madrigals, the most hilarious texts and could totally be applied to Again, some of the more dramatic stuff from modern pop artists today. Um, another really good intermediate piece or group of pieces that's more on, more conservative in its compositional style because it's a sacred nature is the burial service. So there's four different pieces, short pieces, that make up the burial service. I am the resurrection and the life. I know my Redeemer liveth. We brought nothing into this world, and I heard a voice from heaven. Even though it's a sacred text, it could be done with kind of a secular perspective if you're wanting to, with great drama in the text. There's great musical drama in it as well. You could do two of them back-to-back or just one of them. They're fairly short. The first two, I know I am the resurrection and the life, and I know that my Redeemer liveth are vastly homophonic. And then the second two 
are much more polyphonic, polyphonic in their texture. But the text painting is great. You know, talking about being laid low and the the lines are descending, and it would be really good for teaching that sort of text painting in a different way as well. And the ranges are perfectly moderate for teenagers or amateur singers in community groups, but could be done very artistically beautifully in a higher level, like professional group as well, um, but could easily be done by even an advanced junior high group or middle school group. Um, because again, the ranges are just right in the money spot for everyone. And, and there's some of them like you could raise, uh, raise them a whole step if the bases and or altos can't hit low G's, you know, raise it up a whole step and it's not, then it doesn't soar to the rafters too much for the tenors and sopranos. So those are some practical kind of modifications you could make. And then for a difficult piece, there's two, again, a sacred piece and a secular piece. Um, the first one is When David Heard. And this text is really has really been made famous because of Eric Whitaker. Uh, Eric Whitaker's setting of When David Heard, but this piece by Tompkins is extremely emotive and expressive and dramatic, and it would be really cool, you know, for an advanced choir to team this When David Heard with the Eric Whitaker back-to-back and show different time periods way of expressing that deep, tragic emotion. The ranges are fairly wide, considerably wider than any of the pieces mentioned so far, and require great vocal kind of stamina and technique. And even though the fr- the phrases are like a singable length, the slower temper- tempo requires much more command of that technique because you're holding these phrases longer, the endings and the cutoffs are tapered, the higher notes come towards the end of the phrase, and um, it's definitely a a sing, to say the least. Uh, But it's so beautiful and so expressive, and it's one of my favorite pieces by, in all of the British Renaissance kind of repertoire. Another piece that's really good um, that I would consider to be in the difficult category is Music Divine, and that one's for six parts. Really thick, imitative polyphony. The ranges are, again, on the edges. It's a great text about music and singing about the love of music, which there are a large number of contemporary works about the love of music, and th- this one is is also really expressive about it and has some great text painting. It's really typical of Tompkins' work, but it's kind of that higher-level polyphonic writing that requires a little bit more skill. So, there you have Thomas Tompkins. Thanks for tuning into the show today. Had a great discussion about 
the rehearsal time to performance time ratio, some perhaps radical ideas on some things we can do to bring that ratio down a little bit. A really, really insightful conversation with Christopher Gabitas and a composer profile on Thomas Tompkins. Be sure to like and subscribe on all of our platforms, and we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.